Welcome to the Kickstarter Journeys podcast brought to you by Fundamental Games. Each episode will provide you with some insight and opinions about successfully funded Kickstarter projects from the creators themselves. Here's your host, Wes Woodbury, ready to learn about another successful journey from the popular crowdfunding platform. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kickstarter Journeys. Today we have with us a long-term publisher called Smirk and Dagger. And uh, representing them is Kurt Covert. Hey, Kurt, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, excited to have you. Uh, I was reading through your website and uh, looking at what you have online. And kind of for those who don't know, Smirk and Dagger is widely known for their love of backstabbing games. And more recently, they've broadened their appeal with the Smirk and Laughter line. But it's all built on a simple premise that when you engage people on an emotional level, you create a more memorable experience at the gaming table. And you guys have had some really cool games that have popped up over the years. Um, but what we're talking about today is the fact that you have decided to join into the Kickstarter world of things. And, um, and that's what my podcast is all about. So it's kind of interesting because I'll get to talk to you from a different perspective. Most people uh, have been doing Kickstarter a while and then eventually kind of leave Kickstarter. Uh, but you have never done Kickstarter and you've jumped into it this year. So That's correct. Um, yeah. So I guess... Um, You've been in it for 17 years, and do you know how many, <laughs> put you on the spot here, how many games you've published over the years? I, well, let's see, for for probably the first 10 years, it was one game of game a year, uh, but it's ramped up uh, since then. I would say it's it's probably on the order of 24, give or take. Wow. Yeah. And you guys, you do it, um, do you make your own games, or do you publish other people's designs? Both. Um for the for the first 10 12 years um i did almost all of my own game design um okay. and uh and i i remain a a one-man company though i certainly have had help along the way um but um then at some point as i wanted to try to produce more titles a year uh, for for most of that time i was working full-time as a uh, creative guy at a marketing agency, uh, which is a very demanding job as it was. So um, I really only worked on Smirk and Dagger from like nine at night until, you know, two in the morning sometimes. Um, yeah, I know how that feels. Yeah, so, um, so really, you know, one game a year, two games a year was all I could handle. And when I wanted to push out a little bit more than that, um, yeah, I started looking uh, to the outside for for other game ideas and uh, had people pitch me games. So, excellent. Well, over the 17 years, you've had a lot of great games and titles, but it wasn't until this year that we saw your name behind a Kickstarter. Your first Kickstarter was in February with a game called Cinder. That C I N D R kind of uh, I think it's a pun on Tinder if I uh, read it correctly. <laughs> Can you, it uh, is indeed yes. Awesome. Can you share a little bit about that game and why you felt it was the right time to enter the crowdfunding platform? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, there were there were a number of factors that that led me uh, to Kickstarter. And actually, there were a number of factors that first uh, dissuaded me from Kickstarter. Um, and maybe it's worth talking about those. Yeah. Um, when I when I first started my company, obviously there there was no Kickstarter. There there was barely an internet at that point, um, and um, so I put my house on second mortgage in order to finance my first game. 
Um, that is not something I recommend, by the way. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a little um, risky. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, if at that time in 2003, if Kickstarter existed then, I absolutely would have been part of it right out of the gate. Um, but that didn't happen. So having invested uh, my my own money, I had to make sure that with my house on the line, that that first design was as tight as it possibly could be. You know, there, there was no margin for error. It had to be great. It had to sell. I had to recoup my money. Um, right. And then having successfully done that, I needed another game to actually become a real company. So that happened. And I found um, that I was at least able to fund my own games coming coming out of that, you know, probably around the the year, you know, three to five of doing this, I was out of the red and into the black. Nice. Um, what was the name of that first game? Uh, my very first game was called Hex Hex. Oh, yeah, um, you still sell that online. I see that. I, I do indeed. <laughs> In fact, it looks like we're going to be getting ready to uh, come up with a, a new version of it, uh, maybe for, for next year or the year after. But, um, but point being was... Um, my company was fine, was eventually able to fund its own games. Um, they paid for themselves, they funded the next, and uh, and so you know it was it was a viable business. So when Kickstarter first started, I really took to heart what the intent I thought of the platform really was was to make it possible for people who had the dreams but not the means to get their projects made. And so it was disingenuous, I thought, for me to participate in that platform at that time because I was I was doing fine. Yeah. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I guess there are, you know, there are a number of successes where, you know, uh, some new companies had had made a big splash and had jumped way ahead of my company, in fact, in terms of how big they got. Um, and other companies started looking towards the platform as a way to uh, further uh, market, to reach new audiences, and, and of course to to get funding ahead of production. Um, but there are still a number of things over the years that had held me back. Um, one of the big ones was that uh, in the early days of Kickstarter and some of the established companies starting to use it, retailers had a major problem with it. Um, we were taking their their initial sales. Uh, we were competing with the very people mm -hmm. who we were asking to be our partners. Um, that's something that not only did I hear from my retail partners, but something I very much understood and appreciated. And I did not want to be competing with them um, for the same reason I've never pushed my own online sales. I, I, I tend not to do like discounts of my games online or things like that just because you know i value all my retailers it's well a, a tough spot to be in then yes and and it is because obviously it started to become a really important force in the industry um but still i didn't feel it was it was right for me and my company well not too much longer after that, um, there was even some some softening on the part of, of retailers because what they started to see was games that made a big splash on Kickstarter ended up 
continuing to make a big splash in retail sales. Um, mm-hmm. It ended up being, quite honestly, one of the best ways to market a game before it existed, creating a um, a whole group of people who, who were hungry for the game, may have missed out on the Kickstarter, have now heard about everyone talking about it, and were hungry to get that copy. Um, and that kind of marketing power doesn't exist anywhere else um, that I'm aware of uh, as it relates to board games. And yet I still dragged my feet. And <laughs> one of the reasons I continued to drag my feet was because, as I mentioned, I am still a one-man company. And I had heard the very real and accurate reports about how much work it is to put on a Kickstarter, how many man hours, how much um, advanced planning. It's it gets it gets crazy. And, 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 and then honestly, babysitting it from moment to moment in the throes of the campaign. And that was something I could not do when I had a job, a day job. And it was yeah. not something that was going to be easy for me to do. Uh, even when I, I moved off and was doing this full-time by myself. Um, now, your question was, so, why this year, and therefore, why Cinder? Well, the easiest way to answer that was, last year was a, a very rough year for my company, unexpectedly. Um, the distributor... Uh, model changed drastically and without notice. Um, obviously, uh, with Kickstarter, there have been more and more games coming out exponentially year after year. And last year, I think there were 5,000 new releases in just you know one year. Wow. Now, that's that's impossible for any retailer to actually offer all of them. It's impossible for any distributor to carry all of those games in any number. And so... Uh, one or more of the distributors ended up bringing a financial advisor in and saying, look, we need a risk assessment. And they said, they looked around like, well, this, you're in real, real danger. There's no way for you to actually not be at severe risk. And so here's what we're recommending. You should only buy whatever the retailers pre-order on a game and maybe, you know, discretionary 10, 15% maybe. Um, And that sounds absolutely like sound advice, um, it makes a lot of sense on paper. Um, and for a lot of companies, it also made sense because uh, retailers consistently pre-ordered their products. Um, yeah. But the system is is kind of slanted against retailers for to do pre-orders. Um, and therefore, they tend to only do them if they are concerned about not being able to get a product otherwise. You know, either they'll be, you know, allocated and won't get enough or, you know, um, you know, it simply will be gone by the time they have a chance. Now, that very fortunate circumstance for a game company has never happened with my games. Retailers have always been able to get my games whenever they just looked on a website at the at the uh, distributor. Yeah. But in this new world that was not communicated to either retailers or publishers, I had no pre-orders on my games all of last year, basically, and therefore no distributor orders, and therefore I had games in the warehouse languishing with retailers looking for the games and couldn't find them, and they would go from one distributor to the next 
and find only zeros listed on their websites and then said gave up, didn't call their rep. And so I almost went out of business last year just because of that change in distribution. It's so something had to change for you then. Yes. And so it became part of a multi-pronged uh, approach. Uh, one, I, I changed um, how I work with some of the distributors so that um, I could offer my games more or less on consignment, really. There was no risk for them to have my games available so retailers could buy them and they could pay me later. That was the first big hurdle. It took months to do. Um, yeah. But the other reality was if I was going to have any new products this coming year, I was going to have to go to crowdfunding to actually pay for them because um, last year had been such a, a tough year for my company. Um, so whether I whether I thought it was going to be a lot of work, whether it was right for me in the past to do it, it became an imperative for me to do. Um, and once that was the case, I started looking at all the games that I had in development. And I, I typically have, uh, you know, a good four or five games that I'm currently, you know, developing, noodling on, you know, working with the designers on. And, um, and Cinder seemed like one of those games that would have kind of a, a, a cultural impact because it was... Uh, a spoof on Tinder and a send-up of modern gaming, uh, gaming, uh, dating. <laughs> um, but in this case, you're this fantasy adventurer character who s decides they're going to create a profile on Cinder because they want to enter the exciting world of dating dragons. Um, <laughs> and, and hopefully by doing so, they're going to avoid getting burned in the process. Um, so it was a great, funny, catchy idea um, for those uh, people who who have experience with uh, with these kind of dating apps, um, it feels very familiar and yet, you know, almost romanticized, really. Um, there is no negative baggage. It's a very positive environment uh, for, for dating. Uh, it's the great push-your-luck dice game, so it's very casual, almost like a party weight and uh, with the amazing art that we were starting to pull together uh, by Leah Furman, um, it had just a lot of curb appeal. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is a game that I really think should perform very well. People can get excited about the idea of this game. Um, and so that's why I chose it for, uh, for our first Kickstarter. Yeah, and it's uh, very, very colorful. The characters are, are cute and interesting, but the art style is, is superb. And just the way the Kickstarter itself pops on the screen as I scroll through, I mean, you, you guys had over 1,000 backers and uh, 36,000, which uh, um, any first-time creator would love to have. You're in a bit of a different realm where you've created games um, for the last 17 years, so you might have had different expectations, but I think it still performed quite well. And, and like you said, it then gives you a kind of a permanent marketing resource for trying to sell to retailers or distributors down the road. Yeah, and I think um, I think you kind of you kind of nailed it on the on the head, quite honestly. Um, yeah, I obviously you know I've been 
seeing a lot of first-time creators um, having, you know, some very large successes. Obviously, not not every first-time creator gets out there and and does, but there have been enough in the industry that you can say, "Wow." Uh, so my expectation, quite quite uh, actually, was a higher. I, I thought we might do better than we did. Now, I was actually, in the end, happy enough with what we did. We funded, I'd set the funding very high because I was like, you know, well, if I if I can't fund it, I can't make it. So I had yep. to make sure that my goal would actually pay for the game. And that really slowed our campaign and took a lot of momentum out of the sales at the outset. And, you know, I made a lot of first-time mistakes, too. Um, uh, we we ended up launching um, on a Friday because it was Valentine's Day. And I was like, oh, a dating app on Valentine's Day. What? <laughs> of course. And no, that was probably not a great idea because, uh, you know, those first two days are critical. And a a holiday moving into a weekend, see, it's just, it's the worst time. Um, um but you know these are these are things that that you learn as you go yeah i mean absolutely and you, you come from a world where maybe the date the launch date didn't matter as much but with uh, as you mentioned the kickstarter algorithm and the um, initial funding makes a huge difference in even kickstarter's own internal um automated marketing like they just push it out to people based on how you fund and who funded it and if you don't have that at the beginning it can be challenging Yes, and it certainly was for us. And in fact, um, there was there was a good amount of concern um, whether the game would, in fact, fund at the outset. Um, so, luckily, you know, I as I as I said early on, I'm I'm a marketer for for many years, and I used to work on you know Fortune 500 companies, you know, Dannon and Jameson and all sorts of things. Um, so I'm I'm no stranger to to marketing. And I did, you know, it was my first campaign. And so I thought, you know, maybe I, maybe I need a little borrowed interest. And so, um, one of the things that I, that I did early on in the process as part of my planning was I, I reached out to, uh, some friends and also some other companies that I thought would be appropriate. And I, I asked if one of their gaming characters would essentially like to be a guest star and uh, be a a playable ca uh, character in our game. So you, you know you could have uh, your profile be uh, Pookie the the rabbit from Slugfest Games, um, nice. or uh, the uh, the Moon Elf from uh, from Dice Throne, um, or uh, uh, King Torg from Kobolds Ate My Baby. Um, so. The, the, all those characters felt like, you know, they were in the same space and people who liked those things might also like this game. And um, and truly what happened, uh, turns out that Slugfest Games and I have a very similar audience composition. Um, our two games, uh, game companies grew up together. We actually shared a booth, I think, you know, our second or third year in existence. Um, we'd been, you know, great friends for for many years. Yeah. And the kind of games that we create are, you know, fairly analogous. So very often, you know, we we share fans. And when I announced um, Pookie, uh, and that happened mid-campaign, you know, right when we were starting to lose faith, um, 
all the people who are Slugfest fans and Smirk and Dagger fans saw that and they, you know, Slugfest very nicely, you know, announced it to their their fan base and we saw a huge spike which put us over the edge. Um, so yeah, we, it looks we, like it must have been around day 12 is the day that you find it. And I, uh, there's a cool website called Bigger Kick and you can see it on um, Kick Track as well. But uh, just, yeah, it shows that 12th day you suddenly went from, you know, 500 to $1,000 a day and then you had $3,000 and $2,000. So a nice big spike when you made that announcement. Yep. Yep. And, um, and, and that's really, that's really the, in the end, what made the difference, I think, in, uh, in that particular campaign. And obviously, we, we certainly learned a lot from our first Kickstarter. Um, and we also, uh, I think it's fair to say, as, as we looked at our next one, um, having had that first exposure, having had one campaign, you know, all these campaigns tend to build on one another. You know, the community that you build around you and your and your game, um, it's a different community than when you just kind of build the game, you know, at conventions or in retail spaces. Uh, the Kickstarter community is is a unique one. And, you know, you need a first project or two to really establish establish yourself in that community. So, um so I think we effectively did that, and we took a lot of the learnings and uh, and moved it into um, our current campaign. Yeah, it's great that you you recognize that, and um, I'm sure the people that supported Cinder were happy to see it come out with a new one so shortly, because most people will wait um, sometimes up to a year before they launch one, and sometimes Kickstarter won't even allow you to, but um, I'm guessing with your track record and your company that they looked past that and uh, were able to let you move on. Or, or did you end up fulfilling the other one before you launched uh, the Night Cage? We did not, um, and it's it's odd. I had heard conflicting things about um, Kickstarter's uh, willingness to to do that. Um, I know some people have been told that they could not, and some people seem to be doing that same kind of thing all the time. Um, it's not actually a conversation I had with Kickstarter, um, so we yeah, they seem they seem selective with it and uh, yeah. I think in the technical terms, it's only for the first Kickstarter you've ever made. If you haven't fulfilled it yet, you shouldn't launch a second one. But then yep. they don't enforce it. And if they do enforce it, it's usually with somebody who truly is new to the business. Or, um, so I think it's just uh, something that they probably saw your record and like, oh, this guy's fine. <laughs> yeah. And cer- certainly we have a long history of, uh, of producing games and adhering to deadlines. So uh, And Cinder is uh, currently... Uh, on track uh, to to be uh, delivered. Um, it's getting onto a sailing vessel, I think, end of this week. So, um, so that that will put it in backers' hands uh, in September, I believe, late August, early September. Right on. Yeah, it's been a, a challenging year to to meet deadlines in any way, shape, or form. So, if you get it there on time, I'm sure your backers will love it. Yeah. Well, I and I think I think uh, it was. It was just it was just luck, you know. Um, by by the time you know we were ready to start producing, the factories had opened backed up. By the time we were ready to start shipping, the shipping lanes are open. So, um, you know, we just we just got lucky on the timing there. So much like you could be in Cinder, it's a, a match made in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Now, I heard you on another podcast at one point, and I recall you talking about smirk and laughter. And actually, Cinder is a smirk and laughter title. 
It now, is. this is an offshoot of the company you originally made called Smirk and Dagger. And um, I, I love the concept of Smirk and Dagger, but there are games where there, there can sometimes be too much to take that, uh, believe it or not. So what made you want to try making um, Smirk and Laughter as an offshoot of Smirk and Dagger? Um, well, I think I think it was very clear that um, if I was going to start being a publisher as a full-time career, which I, which I am now doing. Um, you know, I had a very niche, a very faithful, but a very niche audience. Um, not everyone loves Take That games. Um, so as much as I enjoyed them and the, um, the energy they, they create, the evocative emotional nature of them, um, they're not everyone's cup of tea. And I get that. Um, so, I knew that I would have to broaden my shoulders to go full time and to be able to have something for everybody. Um, but certainly I had done such a good job at planting my flag and standing for something in the industry. Um, I had well, I had very early indications that uh, people would not accept other games from me. Uh, in 2014, I um I had I had created a a game that I was pitching actually to to Hasbro. Um, it was a, a a kind of a pub style dice game which I had called um, uh, Sutaku, and yep. uh, it was a a dice uh, pusher like dice game, um, and I just thought it was I just thought it was fresh and innovative and fun and I. I, I brought it to the, the Gamma Trade Show, and at, by the time I had done that, it was already on press. So things were, things were rolling. And the Gamma Trade Show is where, you know, I see retailers and distributors, and it's a, very much a, a trade show for the industry. And every retailer and distributor that saw this game stopped me and said, well, wait a second. <laughs> That's not where, you. Where's the dagger in this smirk and dagger game? I'm like, oh, man, I really painted myself in a corner. I, I was thinking in my head, I was like, well, you know, it's a push your luck dice game. So, you know, you're kind of potentially screwing yourself. And that's how kinda, I, I was kind of wedging it in. Yeah, but yeah. I, I heard very clearly that it was it was not what people expected from me. So I knew if I if I tried to come out with a co-op, if I tried to come out with you know anything, that was, you know, this was pretty close in. So anything that was going to be further pushed out, I was like, well, that's not going to work. So I knew I would have to do something. And as I, I, I ended up uh, making the decision to go full time a little bit sooner than I intended, um, when there was um, there's a disruption in in my career path, and I ended up uh, being let go. Um, and it looked like it was going to be kind of a systematic. Uh, thing where every two years it was going to be a similar thing so i figured you know what this is this is the time to make the jump um and when i did that i said okay i'm going to need a sub brand and but i still want to be true to what i really love about games and particularly the games i produce um and as i mentioned the thing that i loved about backstabbing games is the emotional involvement i want you to feel something in the table i want you to be immersed in the game and when you get up from the table i don't want you to talk about how you optimized points and got the best score like that i play those games they're cool but that's not what i do 
Yeah. I want I want a game where you get up from it and it may not be a role playing game, but I want you to tell me like, oh, man, when we were doing this thing, you know, like you're talking in like in the world of the game, you know, these things happened and they were dramatic. There were there was something going on and we all like experienced this thing. That's what I wanted. But they don't have to be backstabbing experiences. So smirk and laughter games first was thought of maybe it was like, you know, well, it could be our boisterous party thing. But one of the first games I saw after the party game that I made to launch it was a game about storytelling where you're an ancient lore giver who um, is telling a creation myth. And you're you're rolling star pip dice to form the constellation, and and um, it ended up being a really heartwarming game that I absolutely loved. And I was like, you know what? I'm just I'm gonna start. Every game that I added to the line ended up changing what the line was, <laughs> and now the line truly is. You know, it's there are games that just somehow touch you and make you feel something at the table above and beyond like the mechanics of play. If whether it be a nor a narrative that you feel part of, whether it is a, an emotional reaction that you have to playing it. Um, however, those things kind of pan out. Those are the things that I, I really value and like to put out in the world. It's a bold move, and I think a very smart move. Um, and I love how the, you kept the word smirk in there. The, the game that you're referring to, I think that's before there were stars. Yes. Uh, I see that. And, and what I love about your website is you even made it an independent link. So you can only see the dagger games on one link. You can only <laughs> see the laughter games on another. So uh, very smart uh, marketing. And obviously what you've been doing for years is paying off. And you know what I, what I love is that you mentioned that um, you mentioned co-op, and you've also been through a couple firsts this year. I mean, uh, changing careers permanently in a way, um, trying out Kickstarter, uh, making a game about dating, smirk and laughter, and now your first co-op game. Um, and so the, that game is live on Kickstarter now for those of you that are listening, but it's called The Night Cage. And it's a fully cooperative horror-themed tile placement game that traps one to four lost souls within an otherworldly labyrinth of eternal darkness. And that yep. just sounds great unto itself, let alone the, the commandments you're getting on gameplay and the visualization that you have behind the game. So um, is that kind of what you, part of what you were thinking of uh, this change this year is, uh, you know, if you're going to change, you might as well go all in. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, every time I have taken on a new game that kind of breaks ground in different ways. I mean, here's the thing. For 14 years, I did nothing but backstabbing games. And now that those kind of shackles are off, now that I, yeah, I'm being pitched and developing all kinds of different ideas, it's it's a very exciting. Um, and so I also did Shobu uh, last year, which was a complete abstract that feels like you you dug it up from an ancient site rather than it was invented. And it's a, just a really amazing abstract game, uh, the storytelling game. And yeah, honestly, the co-op, I never, never dreamed that I would be doing a co-op game. Not just because I have 14 years of backstabbing behind me, but yeah. because generally I don't tend to love them. Um, and one of the reasons that, uh, sometimes co-ops leave me flat is that, um, 
especially when when they're very very mathy um there tends to be quarterbacking there there is someone at the table who has seen something deeper in the game and ends up trying to encourage players to behave the way they see the formula play out and um it's just not fun as a player to be more of a pawn than a player um so I, I tend to disengage from games like that. I'm really looking for the play experience. That's why I'm at the table. So therefore, I really never thought a co-op game would, would appeal to me. Except then I saw the Night Cage. Um, the Night Cage is, is quite unique. Um, first of all, I, I first saw the game because I was a, a judge uh, at a design contest. Uh, it was the Ion Design Awards, um, and they uh, they had entered their game uh, into the into the category. It was um, they created this amazing video, um, very similar to the one that we now have uh, on on the Kickstarter page. Um, yeah. But uh, of course, now we we've really plussed it up. Um, but they were telling a really cool narrative story. They had a very well-planned visual style. Uh, one of the designers, Chris Chan, is also the illustrator. Um, they had a very clear idea of the world they were building and the emotions they wanted you to feel while playing it. The sense of dread and unknowing. You're alone in the dark with nothing but a flickering candle. And it very easily could be snuffed out. And there are monsters in here with you. And the only way to get out is to work together. Well, I was like, you know what? I I need to get a look at this game. And I I emailed them. I, I couldn't go to the final judging, which was out in Salt Lake City. So um, I, I emailed them. And for whatever reason, we, we were never able to connect. But then at Gen Con, they had come up and said, hey, we'd like to show you a game. It's like, oh, guys, I know who you are. I yep. absolutely want to see this game. Um, and it very quickly... Uh, went from uh, a first playtest with them to some serious discussions about uh, about making their game because what it does, it does amazingly well. Um, it happily is very much less susceptible to quarterbacking um, because of the, the unknown element in the game. Um, the beautiful mechanic that they did, what it, they, it's a candlelight mechanic. Um, you can only see the squares in this labyrinth that are directly adjacent to your candle, uh, you know, orthogonically. Um, and so when you move, your light moves with you. So if you move forward, you're going to be lighting new pathways as, uh, as you step into them. But the pathways that you've left behind that are beyond one square away from you fall into darkness but they don't just flip over they are removed from the board forever the darkness swallows them and so if you retrace your steps the maze is completely different and that was so cool and anyone who has ever played the game uh, myself included that's what people remember that's what people talk about that's what makes this game so unique um and does it does an excellent job of creating that creep factor people when they play 
their palms will get a little sweaty. Like every time they flip a tile because they don't know what it's going to be, you know, there's tension at the table. And that is what gets me up in the morning to make games every day is is having you have an experience like that. Um, so those things combined made this an easy, easy yes for me. Um, and um, and they're a great design team. Um, so uh, it's Chris, uh, Chris McMahon, Chris Chan and Roswell Saunders. Um, they're all. Uh, marketing executives uh, as well. They're all creative guys at a an ad agency in Manhattan. Yeah. And um, this is their first design, but they've been working on it for years, balancing it, tightening it, uh, perfecting it. And um, and so when we went into development, um, I there was n there were not a lot of things that had to change. It was very tightly balanced. Um, you know, the few things that I helped them develop develop further. Um, you know, just created a couple more possibilities for, for people to, uh, you know, game around. Uh, but, um, it was, it was great when, when I first played it. It's such a simple but effective and adaptive art style. If you, if you get a chance to watch the video, anybody is listening, it's done very well. Just that theme at the beginning, and then it's not too that you start to see the gameplay of games, but both of them are very well that's your uh, funding levels. We talked about Cinder doing about 38000 or so. Uh, if you look at the Night Cage as of right now, it's at $120,000. So yep. you've already what you had done for your first game, and 2,500 people are supporting it already, and you still have six days to go. So it's really cool to see the growth and the change and dynamic of this Kickstarter as a co-op versus Cinder as kind of an opposition game and uh, the lighthearted one versus uh, kind of that darker um thought and you know what's really interesting is um we talked about the spike that you had uh, and people always want to dodge the trough and the the midpoint of the campaign which is kind of where the night cage is until um the last three days but you somehow raised sixteen thousand dollars yesterday which is more than the last 10 days so uh, was there anything particular that happened then uh yes indeed um so given given cinder um we didn't know in our second Kickstarter what to expect. Um, we certainly didn't expect uh, where we are right now. Um, I had much more conservatively said, well, I'd like to, I'd like us, I'll be happy if we get to 50. I think if we get to 60 or 80, I'm going to be overjoyed. Um, but I expected that to be, you know, by the end of the campaign. Um, yeah. So, even a lot of the um, the stretch goals that we had, uh, you know, planned for, we blew through the first three in the first day, and I, you know, we we were running out, but in the first couple of days, and I was like, oh my goodness, we, we gotta we gotta really start scratching our head and figuring things out. Um, so one of the things that uh, that we did though is we absolutely listened to the backers uh, i'm i'm i very much believe in community i very much uh want to talk to uh my fans i want to hear what they have to say um when people you know have ever met me at my booth they know how how open uh i am and and how much i value uh their interest in what i do so um so we had a lot of comments during the campaign, a lot of suggestions, 
And we took every one of those to heart. Um, now, not every single one of the things that uh, people wanted did we necessarily uh, pursue, but where there was a a groundswell, where there was something that seemed, you know what, this feels important to people. Let's investigate it. And so we spent we spent the last week and a half uh, behind the scenes working hard at seeing if we could deliver some of the things that people had wanted. And as uh, we kept on, you know, steadily growing, and it was about $4,000 a day we were we were gaining, which was terrific at that time. Um, I said, you know, I think we're going to be able to do some other things. And one of them, they, they very much had wanted things like um, metal figures uh, representing the these gaunt prisoners trapped uh, within this labyrinth. Um, right. We had, as part of our all-in, we had um, talked about uh, an acrylic upgrade kit that would include a, you know, this tile holder, which looks like a, a large candle with the, the cardboard tiles uh, being the wax that burns down kind of as a timer as you play them onto the board. Um, we had that and some tokens that we were going to be offering as acrylic pieces just to kind of, you know, add some visual interest uh, to, to your game, as well as a soundtrack and these LED candles um, that you could, you know, show people whether you were, you know, lights up or lights out um, by a flick of a switch. We just thought that was kind of a, a fun way to bring the theme of the game um, and make it a little bit more palpable. So, but people saw the upgrade kit for the acrylics and they're like, well, could we get all of the tiles in acrylic? And I was like, wow, that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be super expensive. Um yeah. Uh, and they also were like, you know, well, what about, you know, what about a neoprene mat? Uh, and I said, well, you mean under the game board? I said, no, no, as the game board. It's like, oh, well, the game board is double-sided, so it would have to be a double-sided neoprene of pretty big size, like 22 by 22. It's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. So so while we were, you know, I, we started quoting those things, trying to find uh, the people who could help us make them, make sure that the costs were not going to break the bank. Um, at the same time, people had also wanted more monsters. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what makes the, the game interesting is to increase the threat level. Quite honestly, it's a super yeah. hard game already. It's, it's got a 50, 50 to 60, 40, you know, win loss ratio. Um, it's, it's weighted to be hard. Um, and we had already introduced at that time, uh, two different advanced monsters for an advanced game, which we had been developing. And they still wanted some more monsters. And the design team, obviously, they've been they've been finessing and balancing this game for years, and they were very cautious about putting anything else into the game that was, you know, gonna upset it. So again, we started the week last week and a half was a lot of hard development hours because um, I challenged them. I said, you know, let's let's put in a boss monster. You know, it could be one tile, but when it hits the board. It's like a dun dun dun. I want the tension of like it, it. You know, we know it's coming. We know it's coming, and, and boom, here it is, big impact. And I, I had some ideas, and they were a little uncomfortable with it. It's like, well, cool. I'll tell you what, they don't have to be my ideas. In a day and a half, come back to me with some things we can test. Yeah. And so they, they like, you know what, cool. All right, we'll, we'll at least take that challenge. You know, we're not committing to being able to do this, but we'll, we're, we're gonna meet your challenge. It's like, great. 
And we we all ended up getting very excited about some of the things that ended up getting created out of this process. Um, so we just announced one today, um, which, you know, kind of breaks all the rules for monsters and is going to be a, a, a very neat one to have. And we've got, I think, one more that we're, we're looking to introduce later. But importantly, that spike um, that you saw, you know, in, in the kind of the, you know, the weaker doldrums of the of the mid campaign to see a spike that uh, rivals or may surpass uh, day two numbers was because we introduced what everyone wanted. I was able to find a way not as stretch goals, but as another higher pledge level to create a deluxe version of the game with the metal figurines, with the acrylic tiles and with the uh, two sided neoprene mat and um, I was able to do it uh, for basically a, a, a small bump in price. It's like, so I, that level is now 98 and uh, before it had been 49. Um, I mean, it's, it, you're basically getting two games and the second game is like a much higher component quality game. Um, so, uh, but that's the way we we figured we could do it is to offer it as uh, as an upcharge deluxe if people wanted it. And so many people have been so passionate about the suggestions they made and so excited by the fact that we gave them what they asked for and the designs look so cool. If you look at the numbers, our our numbers that jumped that high were not because of new backers. I think we were tied uh, for the least number of new backers during that day uh then you know for the entire campaign but yeah. the people who were already backers doubled down and um and that's what caused the spike and quite honestly it's probably a spike that we're going to see continue now through digital gen con and to the 48 hours of the final campaign yeah it's a, a great methodology used there and it reminded me of one that uh, a first-time creator did with something called the goblin king is angry where they they wanted to introduce a special uh, component but just were kind of fearful not wanting to take the risk and as soon as they did their campaign kind of went through the roof with their special goblin meeples so it's yep. amazing um, what people are attracted to and they want that that visual representation especially in a game where it's so thematic uh, I like how you were able to listen to your audience and put that into motion as quick as you did, because it's hard to make those decisions when normally you plan those out months and months in advance. Uh, well, thankfully, you've got some uh, knowledge of the industry, so you probably knew a little bit more of who to talk to and how to get those figures quick. Well, and quite honestly, you know, I get some some of it was just fortune smiling at us. Um, we were approached by a company in Poland and their business is making figurines. They make minis. And they saw the campaign. They were really excited by the campaign. And they saw people asking for figures. And they're like, hey, maybe you should talk to us. And I said, well, listen, here's my problem. Making a mold can be $5,000, $10,000. And if only 500 people order this special deluxe kit, there's no way for me to to see that money back it's it's just it's you know it, it's a it's very expensive and you know so but they said you know our process is different and we're going to be able to make this uh, affordable enough for you and so i was like great um so 
it was really just a, a couple days of conversation back and forth, sharing of a few sketches, con confirmations, and with the confidence I was able to get from those conversations, I could then move forward and say, yeah, okay, this is gonna be a possibility. This is something we can now do. Well, that's excellent. And like I said earlier, you seem to have a lot of things working out in your favor, despite all the challenges that this year may have brought. So uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty awesome. And uh, do, you, do you have any more games then that you're planning to do this year? Or are you just, were you just hoping to get started with your game process in the early part of the year and then publish them throughout the year? Uh, yeah, typically our production schedule, um, we, we tend to release games spring, um, maybe early summer, and then right around Gen Con. Uh, that's, that's typically what, we, what, we're, what we're known for doing. Um, it's very hard to release a game, you know, later in the fall. Uh, it typically doesn't perform very well. So um, that said, um, and of course, right now with, with, you know, with COVID and, you know, whether or not dis distributors will be open, whether retailers are going to be open, um, there's a lot of big question marks. So it's it's hard to plan for a general general release uh, with a lot of um, a lot of confidence. But um, I think the other thing that's that uh, Kickstarter has done for us is uh, the industry itself, including distributors and retailers, if they see a successful product on Kickstarter, it's something that they're also going to be interested in, and it, it helps the overall life of the product. Um, so when Cinder does launch uh, in October, I already know that the industry is going to support it. It will be stocked, it will be available, and it'll it'll get out there and, and find the fan base. Um, and I think uh, that will happen even more so with the Night Cage when it releases in early 21. Um, so right now, no, we won't have any other, um, any releases this year, nor, nor do I think we'll probably have another Kickstarter, uh, for the balance of the year, but we are absolutely working, uh, behind the scenes on further development of new products. Um, I have, um, again, you know, four or five different products that, um, we are looking at, and I, I think we probably identified, um, already another uh, potential Kickstarter coming in our future, which <laughs> curiously is another co-op actually. Um, oh, wow. uh, because uh, the designer uh, I, I saw out in uh, Toronto, Andy Kim, uh, had a really interesting game. It was, um, uh, tentatively it's called The Spill and it's, it's about um, an oil rig disaster where oil is gushing into the ocean and you are emergency responders that are going, trying to uh, contain the oil, remove the oil from the waters and save the sea life before catastrophe. Um, it ends up being a reverse tower defense game. Um, there is a four way dice tower at the center of the table that you pour a whole bunch of dice down the top and it spills out into different quadrants and different segments of those quadrants based on the die roll. And that's how the oil spreads randomly throughout the waters. And you have to kind of circle the perimeter in your boats and fight back the onrush of all the oil. Um, 
It is a really cool looking game on the table because it's got this great dimensional oil rig at the center. Um, it's got um, a lot of drama to the game. Again, a narrative that you have an experience as, as you are trying to work together to to hold things at bay. Um, so, um, and again, I think like the Night Cage, there is no perfect perfect math. You can play the odds, but you don't know how the dice are going to fall. Um, and so what you can do is you make your best guess at an action plan and um but because the math is not perfect uh there is no one answer and therefore it becomes a collaboration a discussion not someone who understands the math better really providing you know the the impetus for most of the moves yeah that sounds pretty cool i can envision that uh tower and the spreading oil just in my mind as you describe it so that will be very cool to look forward to when that does come to fruition. And uh, sometimes we shift gears and uh, put things forward or pull things back. So if it doesn't come, it doesn't come. But it sounds really cool. And Well, um, it'll, it'll definitely be coming. It's a matter of exactly when. <laughs> exactly when. There you go. Awesome. Well, Kurt, uh, I'm running out of time, but it's been a thrilling experience to talk to you. You had so much experience that you bring to the Kickstarter industry, just knowing that your board game history and how you were able to adapt to not only smirk and laughter, but then to um, crowdfunding in general. So uh, just again, thanks for being on the show and bringing that knowledge to us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Is, is there any parting words you have for new creators? Most, most of the people that listen to this are new to board games. So can you think back maybe to your early days, if there's, one thing you could have done differently as you started this hobby of yours, what would it be? No, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that I, I have learned that I would caution people to um, other than the fact that, um, you know, when you decide to, to make a board game, um, you just want to make sure, put every amount of, of effort into it as though your house depended on it. Um, the fact that someone else is going to help you pay for it, don't let that be the reason to jump forward in development before it's ready. Test it, make sure you've got all the bugs worked out, share it with people, get professional uh, input, um, work out everything you can so that it has the best chance of success when it does launch. Um, Kickstarter has been a great way for people who could never have joined um, uh, the industry as a publisher and allows them to do that. It, it drops the barrier. Um, but at the same time, um, if if we let, um, if, if we don't take the time to make sure our products are as tight as possible, uh, people will eventually lose faith in, in some of the, the, the games that come out from new publishers. So, just make sure you've got it really, really ready. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically it. Play more games, have a good time. <laughs> no, that's perfect. And you brought it right back full circle. Just be like your house depends on it, just like you were. So great advice. Just a great game you have with the Night Cage. Thanks again for being on the show. Anybody who's listening, go check out the Night Cage. It should still be uh, live when I make this one. Go out there. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, sir. Take care.